You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning as a family. Let me pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that your word is powerful. It's living. It's breathing. It's active. It's a double-edged sword that cuts deep into the recesses of our souls. It's like a mirror that we are able to see our own reflection and then a reflection of your goodness and faithfulness unto us. And so, uh, Father, we know that your word is that and much more. And yet we also remember, Father, that uh, it is not by mere physical bread alone that we might be sustained, but it is by the bread, meaning the the word of life, every word of God that our souls are sustained. And so, Father, this morning we ask that you would come and do a sustaining work in us, a healing work, a a rebuking work, a corrective work through your word. Uh, Father, as we think about your word, we're also reminded that um, Jesus himself is the word in the flesh. And so, Father, we know that Jesus, whom's flesh was brutally torn open at the cross on our behalf because of our sin um, is that life-giving word and so father come and by the power of your spirit draw us to the foot of that bloody cross help us to see into the doorway of an empty tomb and help us by faith to trust in you and hold fast to the hope of heaven and lock our eyes as stephanie said not necessarily on the craziness of this life, but the hope of the joy of heaven that we have in front of us. Well, we have asked this, and we ask more than that, and we trust that you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This uh, section of Scripture... Um, might feel a little bit abrupt to you if you've been following the study, if you've been reading through um, Philippians. Might feel a bit abrupt to you because um, it's almost as though Paul moves from some very practical instructions like we worked through last week um, to suddenly just laying out a description of this man named Timothy. And so it almost feels like Paul's kind of been heading a kind of a direction and then suddenly like he jumps off on an off-ramp maybe, or maybe you could call it an on-ramp, or maybe you just call it like a detour. It just kind of feels like abruptly like we're going a different direction now, right? 
Um, but I would submit to you that actually uh, what he's doing is he's kind of capping um, mm-hmm. a, a, an entire almost two-chapter-long subject now with a picture um, that the Philippians would be able to hold in their heart. Um, and really, the, the, the picture here is a picture, it's a description of this man named Timothy. And Timothy is a man of godly character. Okay, That's really big idea. Yo, here's Timothy. He's a man of godly character. He's a faithful man. Now, the reality is that faithful men and women, uh, I think, are very hard to find, right? We learn this when we're young. Our parents teach us if you want to find a good man, you want to find a good woman, you've got to look hard because good men, good women, they're hard to find. Godly character, um, in reality, is in really short supply. Uh, Even in the church today, godly character is in short supply. Uh, The reality for uh, us today, and I don't think it's necessarily new for us, but um, it's good for us to think about this fact. We we live in a celebrity culture. Uh, It's a celebrity culture that I think, uh, and I think you might agree, idolizes the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. Uh, Our social media feeds and our news feeds uh, both of those, all of those broadcast this version of, of, of role models for us, and they kind of cast them in, in the image of, I guess, what I would call great American dream to be successful, powerful, and free to do as you please. Uh, we could spend all day talking about the nuances of those three things, successful, powerful, and free to do as you please, um, and, and argue about the bib- biblical basis for some of those things now it's been um, prostituted for sure in in our day Um, but it does seem like our social media feeds and our news feeds even our christian news feeds um, give us some things that we need to be wise and discerning about we live in a political atmosphere i probably say this is about every week like we're in a presidential election year and so what does that mean absolute craziness is what that means Um, insanity is what that means Political world hammers us um, with these um, images. Again, images that hammer your heart, that try to shape your heart. You get these images of different individuals um, that they're always casted as public servants because that is the role. Uh, but the reality is, I can't find many of those public servants that I would even trust to take my daughter out on a first date. So. You know, there's an awful lot of um, imbalance in terms of if I'm going to stand on a stage and say I'm a Christian, whether my stage is in a church or whether my stage is a social media post, as Andrew was mentioning earlier, if I'm going to stand on any one of those public stages, right, platforms, and say that I am a Christian and I believe in godly character, and yet some of the people that I have a proponent for, I won't even trust with my kids. What does that say about what's happening inside of my heart, okay? So I'm not throwing babies out with bathwater. I'm just simply calling attention to this is what we live in. Now, if you want to find a faithful man or woman to be your role model, um, then I think, and I think you would probably agree with me, that you're going to have to begin with some very basic principles of what godly character looks like so so ask yourself that question what does godly character look like 
You might write that question down so that you could think about that. What does godly character look like? Because if you don't know what that looks like, then how will you identify if your role models are actually worthwhile, right? One of the most often quoted passages in the Bible concerning godly character, and you should see a list of these scriptures. I'm going to work through a few here really fast to just kind of lay some foundation. There's a yeah, slide with some passages I want to kind of work through. But Galatians chapter 5 is probably a, one of the premier, foundational, most often quoted, popular passages in terms of godly character, right? Uh, many of you probably heard it, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Here's what we read. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, when I was in kids' ministry as a kids' pastor, in youth ministry as a youth pastor, the popular thing was to break those down into separate fruit, right? Which, you know, when, when you're talking to kids, maybe it's a good idea to do. Maybe even it's good to do for adults. I don't know. At the end of the day, here's the thing. We kind of get this false picture that those are actually separate fruit. Um, more, more faithful to the text, my understanding would be love is the fruit and the rest of those are the description of what love looks like um so there's kind of those two views out there i would take what i'm describing to be probably more faithful to the text especially when you put that alongside of what paul also says about love elsewhere um and the way that they go together fits really well so it's not like it's you can draw a picture of a tree with different fruit and i don't care right it's fine Um, but when you think about what does it mean to love people Beings that Jesus did say, hey, here's the thing. Like, God is one, love God and love people, right? So the question, the question from the beginning of time has always been, what does it look like to love someone then? Uh, that was the core passage, the core commandment, great commandment in Israel. And then you have all these laws that come out of that. These laws, these commands are all descriptions of what it means to love God and love people. Um, and so uh, back to that, 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 that fruit of the Spirit, Kind of like one gigantic piece of fruit that just has all these descriptors on it, okay? Um, Romans 5, if you look at Romans 5, 3 through 5, uh, we read that we are to rejoice in our sufferings. Anybody rejoice in suffering? Not many of us. Knowing that suffering, why? Well, because suffering produces endurance, it says. And then what does endurance produce? Well, endurance produces character. Oh, uh, and what does character produce? Well, character produces hope, he says. Uh, what about hope? Well, hope does not put us to shame, he says. Um, why? Why does hope not put us to shame? Uh, he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. So you, you think of this picture, God's love being poured into our hearts. Has God's love been poured into your heart? If so, then what pours out is not hatred, not arguing, not complaining, not self-centeredness, not pride. What comes out of that overflowing heart then is love because God's love has been poured into your heart. What does that look like? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Did I miss one? I think I got him. I think I got him. He goes on and says, let me see if I got it right. Yeah, yeah, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you have God's Spirit. So this is the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Okay. So how about 2 Peter? 2 Peter uh, 1, 5 through 7. Again, just thinking biblically about what godly character looks like, right? Laying some foundation. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7 says this. 
We are to make every effort to supplement our faith. That's interesting. Supplement. You know what supplement is, right? Supplement is something that kind of helps you grow. That's the way I look at it. Like, I take supplements when I go to lift weights. It gives me strength, gives me energy, gives me the things that I'm lacking. So you might think of it that way. Uh, you might also think of supplement, supplement as something that helps. Um, so he says supplement, make every effort. Effort, that's a, that's a good word. Meaning you don't just get to sit passively back and go, well, maybe someday like some fruit will grow inside of me. You've got you to make some effort. You don't work for your salvation, though. You don't work to earn God's love, though. You work, why? Because God loves you. See, see the nuance? Um, man, God loves me. I want to I get after this. So you make every effort work, supplement our faith, he says in 2 Peter. Make every effort to supplement our faith with what? With virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with what? Do you think he says? Love. So, love I mean, Paul does this. I mean, this was Peter and then Paul. I mean, it, these, these authors do a, an awesome job by the Spirit's power of just bringing everything back to that one central command. And Andrew had no clue, right, when, when you chose that passage to read off this morning. So that's the Spirit at work, too. He had no clue what I was going to talk about this morning. One last very clear passage, and there's a bunch of them. So I just cherry-picked some that are kind of my favorites that some of you may know. <clears throat> Another very clear passage would be Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 15. Here's what we read. One of my favorites. Put on then, like put on a new set of clothes. Put on. If you're ever a Christian, then you have new clothes to put on. The problem for some of us as Christians is that we leave those new clothes in our drawers and we don't put them on. We keep putting our stinky, sweaty. I mean, here's the thing. I took a motorcycle ride last night for two hours and I sweat like crazy, okay? And then I set off a bunch of fireworks for like four or five hours and I was still sweating. Can you imagine if I got up, put those on, and came into the church this morning? Y'all would be like, what is that stench? Here's the problem. It's funny, right? The problem is, is that's kind of what the world thinks of us sometimes. What is that nasty smell from that church? I'm not saying that about our church specifically. Um, we need to be on guard and aware of that, though. God has given us new clothes. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones. You, if you know Jesus, you've been chosen by God. It's not that you chose Him. He first chose you, therefore you got to choose him. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Don't forget you've been chosen. You are also holy in God and you are beloved by God. You're loved. Back to love again, right? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these Put on, you guessed it, love. Put on love, which does what? Binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. So that's a nice thing, that last phrase, lest you think that salvation is only about you and your personal experience and your personal relationship with Jesus. It's not just about that. It's also about the fact that you've been called to a body, a family, a church, which indeed you were called in one body. And last thing he says, be thankful to what Nelson was talking about. So at the end of the day, God has an awful lot to say in his word about what it means to have godly character, right? 
And here's the thing. It's almost as though God, in all of his wisdom, all of his foresight, all of his understanding, he knew that faithful men and women, good men and women, men and women with godly character would be hard to find. The truth is godly character is in short supply. Therefore, we need some rock-solid principles of godly character outlined for us to learn and to grow from. Now, you can kind of follow this whole line of thought, whole line of reasoning, all throughout our study in the book of Philippians, okay? So back to Philippians here. The Apostle Paul has been instructing the Philippian believers on these finer points of godly character over the last few chapters of our study. So I'm going to do a quick uh, flyover, you might say. You should see these principles kind of pop up on the screen for you. Um, just a quick flyover of where we've been so you can kind of track the train of thought, all right? So in chapter 1 of Philippians, uh, verses 27 through 30, uh, what Paul does is he instructs the Philippians to do what? To live their lives as citizens of heaven, hashtag not citizens of Rome, citizens of heaven, okay, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not worthy of Rome, but worthy of Jesus Christ, by standing firm in the message of the gospel, and by not being frightened, lots to be afraid of in their day, lots to be afraid of in our day, but we don't walk in no fear because we're citizens of a country, we walk in no fear because we're citizens of heaven, right, okay? He tells them to, to walk this way, to stand firm this way, while not being frightened as they trust and as they believe in God amidst their suffering. So, big idea, the gospel produces the courage to live rightly. The gospel, and the gospel alone produces the courage to live rightly. And then you move on, chapter uh, 2, uh, verses 1 through 4. On the next slide, you'll see Paul instructs the Philippians, uh, again, kind of following the same train of thought, to live their lives as citizens of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ by doing what? By resisting the urge to become self-centered and to be full of pride. How will they do this? How will they make war against self-centeredness and pride? They will do this as they put on the humilitive mind of Christ. So, Humility does what? Crushes our self-centeredness and our pride. Okay? Now you move into uh, verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. Paul describes, in those verses, he describes two major things. We took two weeks to look at this section. Um, he describes, on the one hand, the self-humiliation of Christ at the cross. No man forced him to go there. He humiliated himself that way. The self-humiliation of Christ at the cross. And then secondly, in the second week that we looked at this passage, the super-exaltation of Christ. You might say super-exaltation. What we saw there in that picture is this really vivid picture of Christ's return. And He's returning as the Lord and King, whereby every knee is going to bow, not just some Christians, not just some bad guys, but every knee that has ever existed for all of time is going to bow in those moments. And... Every ton that's ever existed is going to confess what? The gospel. The gospel simply, Jesus is Lord. And that, in, in that short phrase, it was apostolic shorthand for the gospel, you might remember. So every ton is going to confess the gospel. 
Some are going to confess the gospel in great joy. Others are going to confess the gospel in that moment in great shame. Jesus is not only our greatest model of godly character, uh, but Jesus is also our highest hope for when we mess things up, right? And our highest hope for this world that we live in. Our hope, our highest hope for complete justice in this broken world is not found at the voting booth. It is not found in building a great life for yourself. It is not found in marrying someone. It's not found in having 2.5 children. It's not found in the Harley Davidson motorcycle that I rode here this morning. Our greatest hope, our greatest hope, is found in the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. And we must be reminded of this every day. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, as we worked into this last week, then Paul then outlined some very super practical uh, instructions on how to be people of godly character who do not spend our lives complaining or arguing, Right? But instead, he wants us to be known for our attention, our, 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 our focus, laser attention to growing in both personal and corporate holiness as a church. Why? Oh, we should grow in, in personal and corporate holiness so that we might then shine as lights amidst a crooked and twisted generation. Not hard to look around today and say that we're... Definitely living in a crooked and twisted generation. And not the first one either. Right? Every generation is crooked and twisted in its own ways. But the idea here is one of personal and corporate holiness in the family of God over and above standing in self-righteous judgment of the world around us. Um, and really, really the, the whole kind of core of that uh, passage from last week, the whole practical nature of that, um, it reminds us that working out our salvation, on the one hand, and working out our sanctification, on the other hand, these two things go together. You know, your salvation is, I cling to Christ to save me. And sanctification is how I become holy, become transformed. I cling to Christ to do that work in me, which is a work that God began that He's not ever going to discontinue because he doesn't, he doesn't leave projects undone, right? And so... Salvation and sanctification are so closely interlinked. The problem, I think, in the evangelical church is that we have lifted high the doctrine of salvation to the detriment of the doctrine of sanctification. This is why you have churches that don't openly and actively and publicly repent of sin, but instead are all about the culture war. All those sinners out there, you follow my train of thought? This would have been just as tempting for the Philippians. So that's why the doctrine of salvation and sanctification are so closely interlinked together and we need to be reminded of this and how important it is for us to then live as lights in a dark and perverse world. I mean, the reality is what, what, what caught people's attention in the early church was not so much how well those uneducated disciples argued with everybody around them. It was on their transformed life. I mean, before the day of Pentecost, where were those disciples at the cross? Where were they? They weren't there. They were gone. They were hiding, fearful, right? And where were they on the day of Pentecost, if you remember the, the, the book of Acts? They're, they're in a room, and they're scared. They're shaking, and they're praying. 
And then the Holy Spirit comes and fills them. And what happens after? They preach boldly. They preach the gospel. Now, primarily, you might do your work and find out that they're preaching primarily to some very religious people. Um, 3,000 people come to Jesus that day, right? And so, so it's kind of like putting a different set of glasses on. If you've been looking at the world kind of a certain way, uh, through a certain kind of quote-unquote Christian like worldview, um, you might find as you go back to the Bible and you study the Bible, not just cherry-picking your passages that you love to cherry-pick to uphold your ideology, but when you actually go to the Bible and you study through it line by line, verse by verse, asking good questions about it, like, hey, who wrote it? When was it written? Who was it written to? Why was he writing it? And then you start to actually kind of get funneled into the actual intention of the author. And then you start to think about what God was actually doing in those cultures. You find out, you know what, there, there's some room for growth here. There, there's some room for me to change a bit in, in the way that I'm viewing the world around me. And then what happens is you put on like a new set of glasses, right? You start going, oh, oh, this is what it means to live in a culture that is dark and perverse. And to see transformation and change happen. I take you back 20 weeks ago. We were preaching the last three messages in the book of Joshua. The last three sermons that Joshua preached to his people. And I said some things in those messages that really got a lot of us, if not all of us, thinking. And it shook us up a bit, too. Now, if you go through all those 20 weeks until today, and you think about the different things I've even preached over the last five, six, seven weeks since we started meeting again, in regards to the culture that we live in, the whole aim of this is let's be lights in this world that are being transformed. What's going to transform a world? A church that is being transformed, right? So, shine as lights in this dark world. The Apostle Paul has obviously had much to say about what it means to be men and women of godly character who live our lives as citizens of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question here that I think seems to kind of be resounding all throughout this text is this. Like, who, who can we look to? Uh, who can you see in your mind's eye that is a great model of what all of this looks like? Like, who comes to your mind first? Now, he's asking, I think, the Philippian church this, or the Philippian church is asking this. Let me just ask you that. Ask the question, who is it that you look to? It's like, man, I think that person has got some really rock-solid, godly character. One of those for me is my old pastor in Crete, one of the, one of the men that trained me. His name is uh, Brent Bromberger. We used to give him guffkins of his last name. We called him PB, and then I was J, so PB and J was kind of funny. Um, uh, Brent was a golden retriever, is a golden retriever in his personality, and I'm a lion, so he developed me and disciplined me and trained me, and uh, you can probably imagine what it's like for a golden retriever to tra train a lion, kind of fun, you know, um, and he just, he would take things from me sometimes, and he would come back, okay, Joe, let's sit down and talk about this. I mean, he's one of those men, though, in my life, there's other men here in this congregation, in this family, that I would look to and say, hey, man, these are, these are good, good models. Uh, primarily, first of all, it'd be easy to say how our pastors, our elder team, these are men that we install to walk in front of you that would be good models and examples. Are they perfect? No. Am I perfect? No. You know that. Um, but what you should see is an active striving towards growing in godly character. I mean, even Joe at the age of 73, um, dude looks like he's 50, um, acts like he's 50, forgets like he's 80 anyways. <laughs> every week, man, every week. Um, but even Joe, man, you sit down with Joe Nelson long enough and you'll find, he'll, he'll tell you, man, I've still got things to learn, still changing, ain't done yet because we're not in heaven yet, right? 
Who can we look to as a model of what this looks like? Uh, we know that Jesus is our primary model, right? We, we get that. It's our primary person we look to because he's, he's perfect. But the question uh, I think that Paul is try, trying to get the Philippians to ask here is, like, hey, is, is, there a, is there a human being alive right now at the time of the writing of this letter that you can look to as a flesh and blood example? And Paul's answer is an astounding yes. And in fact, a truth be told, he's going to give two. He's given Timothy this week. And then when we come back in 10 weeks, we're going to pick right up here. It's kind of a cool way to leave this off. Not planned, but planned by the Holy Spirit. We're going to pick right back up with the same question to reenter this study. And he's, next, he's going to give Epaphroditus. You've got to love that name. Can anybody say that name? Epaphroditus? I mean, who names their kid Epaphroditus? I don't even know what the nickname is. Come here, Epaphy. I don't know. <laughs> Epaphroditus. Now he's going to go there next and talk about him. That's, that's verses 25 through the end of chapter um, 2. Uh, and so um, this week, though, he gives us Timothy. He says, hey, Timothy is a man that you can look to. Uh, Timothy is a great example of what it means to be a man or a woman um, of godly character whose manner of life as a citizen of heaven is worthy of the gospel. So look at some things that the Apostle Paul says about Timothy. I've got a few things outlined Um, that I think are maybe important for us to take home with us today. First thing I see is that Timothy is a trusted representative. Okay, Write that down somewhere while I take a drink. Timothy is a trusted representative. Uh, In verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So what's happening here is Paul, Paul just simply longs for the joy of hearing that the Philippians are growing in the gospel. And he knows uh, that that Timothy is going to be a trustworthy representative for them. He he literally trusts Timothy to represent the interests of the beloved Philippians and the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus faithfully. That's what he knows about Timothy. Who can you say this about? Can you say this about yourself? That you would represent the interests of your church family and the interests of those who lead you and shepherd you and mentored you, as well as represent the interests of the Lord Jesus faithfully. Can you? Who do you know that does? Because uh, those questions are what pops up in my head when I read this, when I, when I wrestle with this truth that Timothy was a trusted representative. I asked myself, am I a trustworthy representative? Can I be trusted to represent the interests of the people I'm called to serve? Who do I have in my life that is full of godly character? Who am I fashioning my life after that is not a person of godly character? Timothy, Paul says, is a man of godly character who was a trusted representative. Second thing that I notice about Timothy Uh, is that Timothy is uniquely genuine. Timothy is uniquely genuine. So Paul explains to the Philippians, he's sending Timothy, right? He's sending Timothy, his trustworthy representative. Why? So that Paul might be encouraged by uh, good news of the Philippians' growth in the gospel. He he doesn't want to hear that they're stagnant or that they're going the opposite direction. He wants to be cheered by the news that they're growing well. They're being sanctified as they cling to Christ for salvation. And the reason, the reason that Paul is sending Timothy and not sending someone else, this is fascinating, we're going to talk a little bit about this here, 
uh, is, is, is because Paul says this. What does he say in verse 20? He says, I have no one like him. Now, do you know, you guys will love this, do you know what the Greek word, um, the, the Greek word is um, for no one? Do you know what that Greek word means? It means no one. I, I, it's like I get you guys with that one every time. I love it. Because what you think I'm asking is, what's the Greek word? I have no clue what the Greek word. Joe knows, maybe. I haven't taken Greek yet, so I don't know. But I do know what the Greek word means. It means no one. <laughs> I have no one. Now, I do that goofy little thing just to cement it in your mind, right? It's just a teaching thing, teaching technique, right? I have no one. No one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. A Timothy is simply, uniquely genuine. Now, while there were definitely many Christians in the area, we're going to come back to this again, so it might feel like repetition here in a moment, but while there were definitely, I think, a bunch of Christians in Rome at the time that Paul is living on house arrest as he's writing this letter, the Apostle Paul says that he can't think of anyone else who is as uniquely and is as genuinely concerned for the welfare of the brothers and sisters in Philippi, okay? What does that tell you? Timothy is one of a kind, Timothy is the real deal. There's no question in Paul's mind regarding Timothy. So when I read that description, when I think about that description, it elicits this, these questions of self-examination in me. I hope that it would for you too. Do I stand out in the crowd as someone of godly character? Is there any hint of inauthenticity or fakeness about me? Does my reputation, like the story of my character, does it leave anyone questioning my genuineness? Uh, one of the clearest ways that I can see is if I'm going to try to make a wide church application, not pointing at anybody here, just simply saying, in the church abroad today, especially in America, because of social media, popular and it's fun to point out specifically other people's sin while glossing our, our own over. The statement that usually happens, it's, it's like, it's, here's the thing, like when you become a Christian, and then you become part of a church, it's like the first card they hand you is this little card of things that Christians should say and not say. Things you don't say are like cuss words. Don't say those. But here's what you should say. I'm doing fine today. Okay, that's one. Um, I, I sinned a whole bunch this week, but oh, I'm so thankful Jesus loves me. That's great, but it's really glossed over. And, and they're usually fast, right? And you guys know I hit this quite a bit because I know it's a temptation for us. It's a tendency because this is how, it's a sin thing at the end of the day that we would be more concerned with the specifics of other people's sin and wanting to gloss over and kind of hide our own and put like, you know, skins, well, probably not skins, we probably put fig leaves from day one over those. So are we inauthentic or are we genuine? I think Paul's getting after some of this in that. Timothy, at the end of the day, was a man of godly character who was uniquely genuine Third thing I noticed about Timothy, um, coming out of verse 21, is that Timothy uh, seeks the interests of Jesus Christ, okay? Timothy seeks the interests of Jesus Christ. Now, all I've done is I've taken this next verse and kind of turned it into a positive principle. Um, it's an implication of the text for sure, right? It's not an explicit, but it is implicit. Um, the Apostle Paul implies this, that, that Timothy seeks the interests of Jesus Christ Here's, how, here's what he says, verse 21. Look at it with me. He says that everyone else, what do they do? Uh, they seek their own interests 
not those of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, Once again, coming back to the principle that there are certainly a bunch of Christians in Rome, we know that. Um, Apparently, all of them didn't pass the sniff test, all of them. Rome's a pretty big city. I mean, it, it seems hard to comprehend the idea that out of all the little house churches in Rome, that not one of those Christians in all of those churches would pass the sniff test for Paul. For godly character. Well, why is that? Now, again, lest we like put blinders on and think somehow that we're immune to that, please, please let the Holy Spirit speak to us in this. Because if somehow we thought we were immune to what Paul is saying about the church in Rome, well, what would that be an indicator of deep down inside of our hearts? Wouldn't that be an indicator of spiritual pride? To think that somehow we were immune to that. Okay? So it's crazy. Apparently, Paul couldn't find a single person other than Timothy in Rome that would pass the sniff test to be a man of godly character who could be trusted as his trustworthy representative to the believers at Philippi. Um, The question that this, I I would hope, would elicit inside of us as a self-reflective type question uh, is just simply like, hey, am am I a person? Am I a person who seeks the interests of Jesus Christ? Now, again, it's a broad question. It's a yes or no question. There's probably better ways to ask the question, but what what would it look like for me to be a person who seeks the interests of Jesus Christ? What would it look like to be a person who doesn't seek the interests of Jesus Christ? In, In what ways am I seeking things that I once thought were the interests of Jesus Christ, but wound up just being the simplified interests of something else or someone else? Because think of it, Satan is a angel of light, right? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes as a deceiver. And the scriptures even tell us that uh, he would deceive all, um, even the elect, if that were possible, meaning that you and I do stand in danger of being deceived. So if that's the case, it's important for us to continuously self-examine, grab a hold of that which is good, cast away that which is bad. That's, that's growth, right? continuously growing. Am I a person who seeks the interests of Jesus Christ? This is an important question for the church. I, I want to make an application one way. Um, I mean, especially here in America. And some people would just say in the West, I bet it's not just us. I bet it's been around this way for a long time. Um, there is a reason. I think I remember sharing this story earlier this week too. Um, now there's a reason that in the early church at one point, when somebody would come into the church and say, hey, I'm a believer now, I want to get baptized, they'd say, oh, really good for you. Well, three years from now, if you're still here, and you haven't turned into somebody who's going to uh, abandon us or turn against us, or you're not just a spy dressed up trying to get us killed, three years from now, if you're still faithful, we'll baptize you. Because at the end of the day, there's a realization, I think, for the early church that um, baptism doesn't save you. Right? It's a sign. It's an outward sign of something that's authentically taking place inside of you. And so the other church was much slower about that because they were more discipleship-oriented, I believe, rather than numbers on a, on a sheet-oriented. i got to get my report at the end of the year to my church planting regional director so they know I baptized two people this year, by golly. Otherwise, I lose my church planting support. I just totally flipped switches on you, I know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does exist. And then leaders of churches are affected by that. Um, or you play the comparison game. I just wish we baptized as many people as the other church across town, right? 
And so you just start running people through the hurdles. There's like five easy steps to Jesus. Now you're saved. Bingo, bango. Get you to fill out the form. Make you a member and get you baptized, right? Um, walk this journey and, and know the tensions inside of there. What have we created then in the church? Now the evangelical church is good in many different ways, but some of the things that the evangelical church has created is more of a consumer, self-interested mindset. Actually, what we've done is we've just stoked that. Because everybody, when we come in as sinners, right, because we're sinners, we've all got that tendency inside of us. So all the church has done is kind of unknowingly played along with them. Be like, oh, well, you, you want this? Oh, we'll get you that. It's not simple to get you that. Well, sure, but what's the outcome of that? The outcome is a bunch of people sitting in pews every Sunday, and they're more fans than they are participants, right? Um, they're more about what they receive rather than what they invest. Back to the investment word that is a big piece of how we want to lead this church for a while. So ask anyone why they're a part of the church. Oftentimes they're going to give you consumer answers, self-interested answers, instead of contributor answers and discipleship answers. So here's what I mean by that. We choose a church based on how we feel about it, based on the programs it offers, the quality of the music production, the likability of the preacher. Does he have too many tats or not enough? I don't know. And the feeling of the community. Like, there's just, just got to be a feeling, right? It's got to feel a certain way. Um, now, these are not bad things. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying throw those things out. Oh, not bad. They're, they're good. They're actually good questions to ask. Uh, the reality is this. Please always remember, whenever I get on these tangents and start applying things this way, God created us as both consumers and contributors. You are both uh, I would never argue for the contributor mentality to the exclusion of, of, of consumer. Uh, what I will argue against is the chemical imbalance of the two based on what we see in the church today. Okay? The problem is that we rarely balance the consumer things with contributor things or discipleship things. So here's questions I think are good for us. Is this church the church that I contribute my time, my talent, my treasure to? Do I? Right? Am I actively engaged in helping other people to grow spiritually here? These are discipleship questions. These are investment questions. These are ownership questions. Does this church regularly repent of sin? Real sin, not perceived sin, not glossed over sin. Do they regularly repent of specific sin? Does this church spend time at the foot of the bloody cross? Do they spend time in the doorway of an empty tomb? Am I constantly hearing that message of the gospel? Am I learning how to preach it myself because it's what we are saturated in? Are we consistently reminded of the hope of heaven? Well, so these things, I think, could be said about Timothy. Because Timothy was a man of godly character who sought the interests of Jesus Christ. And the interests of Jesus Christ are primarily made up, in one word, the gospel. Right? Which leads me to the fourth thing that we notice about Timothy. Timothy is a worthy co-laborer, right? He's a worthy co-laborer. Now, I don't know if I spelled it right or if I spelled it wrong because I could spell the E-R at the end with an O-R and it wouldn't give me a green line. So I really don't know. I'm saying that to wake all of you guys up in case you're sleeping. And Timothy is a worthy co-laborer. Paul says, you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. See, this is a picture of a co-laborer who sticks with you through thick and thin, right? 
He doesn't go anywhere. He, he stays with you. He doesn't run away. He doesn't hide at the first sign of difficulty. He doesn't jump off the wagon because of some silly disagreement. Timothy's faithful, godly character, it had been time-tested. It had been proven to be invaluable. Uh, Timothy's relationship with his mentor, Paul, the Apostle Paul, his relationship was, was like a close-knit father-son relationship. It wasn't, wasn't like Paul said jump and Timothy asked how high. It was more like two equal men, right? Uh, investing their entire lives into something. And that something was the ministry of the gospel. That's what Paul says. Paul and Timothy both. Along with every other Christian who possesses godly character. Uh, we, we are like co-laborers who proclaim Christ everywhere. According to Colossians 1, 28-29, warning everyone, nobody really likes to be warned, right? But warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now we can spend all day talking about what does mature look like. Yeah, a short phrase would be this. You know, maturity looks like all of us being able to say, I don't know what I don't know. I just don't. And I need Jesus and to show me that. I need, I need you to show me that too. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ as we work hard with what? With all of his energy, God's energy that he powerfully works within us. That's Colossians 1, 28-29. It's like Paul's like mission statement. This is why I do what I do. So Timothy was a man of godly character, was a worthy co-laborer. The question is, can the same be said of us? Are we worthy co-laborers? Do we even have people in our lives that are worthy co-laborers that we work alongside and that work alongside of us? In conclusion, the Apostle Paul basically wraps all of this up by reminding the Philippians that he really hopes to send Timothy to them very soon. He says, just as soon as I see how it's going to go with me, and I, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. At the end of the day, uh, Paul's ultimate hope was not in Timothy. Paul found joy in Timothy, I'm sure. You might remember that the reason that Timothy is even with Paul is because a prior associate named Mark um, abandoned him. He bailed one day because he was a, I don't know what word to use, so I won't use any word to describe him because the words that just went through my head are bad. So whatever Mark was, however, you, he ran off. He was a traitor maybe at that point, you might say. That'd be maybe a good way to describe. Um, Timothy, though, comes along, jumps in with Paul. At the end of the day, though, Paul's ultimate hope was not in Timothy. His ultimate hope is in the Lord. Paul, Paul strongly desires to see the Philippians himself but the verdict it basically is not in yet as to whether or not he's going to get released from his jail cell. And so he's planning to send Timothy to them because he's a man of godly character. Timothy is a man who has lived his life as a citizen of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's a, a man who could be trusted to represent the kingdom of heaven faithfully. He, he's a man who is uh, uniquely genuine in his concern for the well-being of others. He's a man who uh, seeks the interests of Jesus Christ alone, unlike so many others in the Christian community. <coughs> Timothy is a man that could be trusted, to be trusted to stick around through the best and the worst of times. <clears throat> I, 
the question for us that we're left with is, are, are we this kind of person? I, I've been in ministry long enough. I've been walking with Jesus long enough to know what the parade of people that parade through churches looks like. I don't say that with any indictment towards any of you. I just know what the parade feels like and looks like. Um, it's painful. It's hurtful, not just to me, but it's hurtful to a family. It's selfishness at its, at its best. And... It's consumerism at its craziest. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll stand with you guys in refusing to feed that here. Um, and I'm not the only one. I, you know, I know Chris and I have talked about other pastors in town that would preach the same message too. Like, that's not mission. It's not God-honoring. And the church is so well-known for this, the church-hopping idea. Um, don't hear me wrong. I, there are good and godly biblical reasons to leave a church family. There are. Um, but I, I, I can't tell you that, that I very often at all hear a good reason. I'm very few and far between. Some of you are here because you had a good reason. I, I will say that. I know that. Um, let us not be known for that. Right? Let us not be known for that. Are we this kind of person? Are we a Timothy kind of person? Do we have godly characters? Is that what our church family is known for? Are we faithful men and women? Do we possess godly character? Uh, where, where do we need the Spirit's help in becoming more like Jesus? These are questions I, I wrote down. Might be good um, self-reflective questions for you to ask. If you, if you weren't able to get it written down, you watch your email. You should get notes on this. You should see a blog somewhere, right? Go back and ask these questions in prayer. Feed yourself on these this week. Everything we see in Timothy... Um, last thought, really was embodied in Jesus, okay? G Jesus is the most faithful man to ever live. And Jesus died because of his faithfulness so that unfaithful men and women, just like you and I, could come to God by faith to be redeemed from the penalty of our sin and then be transformed into the image of our Savior. See, th this is the essence of pursuing godly character, is that you pursue Christ with everything you have as He has saved you so that He might sanctify you and grow you into His image. Faithful men and women are hard to find. And godly character is in short supply. I believe that. Um, but here's the thing. When the gospel of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ gets a hold of a person's heart, then what comes out is godly character. Why? Because love is being poured in to overflowing. And what comes out is the character of Christ who loved us first before we could ever love Him. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I thank You again for Your Word, the privilege that it is to preach, and the joy that we have in the picture of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. And I pray, Father, over the next moments as we close in worship that you would come and, and cast for us um, this picture of Jesus at the cross on our behalf. Humble us, we pray. Draw us to you. Fill us with your spirit. Convict us of sin. Help us to confess that authentically, to be sanctified as we walk out our salvation as you continue the work in us. Help us to be models of what it means to follow Jesus in a dark and perverse world, uh, holding on to the hope of heaven in the doorway of an empty tomb as we kneel at the cross of Jesus. 
We love you. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.